You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in the field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. Today, I'm joined by Nancy Sajadi. She's an independent quality consultant with over 30 years of experience in biopharmaceutical product development. She began her career as a bench scientist doing malaria vaccine research before turning to development of cell and gene using therapy, uh, retroviral vectors for infectious disease, cancer, and cell therapy applications. She left her position as director of QC at Chiron Technology Center for Gene Therapy in 2000 and started a consulting business where she now provides services to biopharmaceutical companies, contract laboratories, nonprofit organizations, universities, and U.S. government agencies. So today we're going to talk about her work and her scientific journey. Thank you for being here, Nancy. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you describe your journey in the science field as unconventional. Tell me more about why you say that. Well, I guess, you know, my thinking is that uh, in terms of what is conventional, from my experience, most people who become scientists have, you know, expressed some sort of early interest in science in some way, and they were encouraged. And then at the same time, they were sort of primed and prepared to go to college. So that option was an expectation or it was available to them. And uh, mine wasn't exactly like that. Although I started off, I had a really um, a really strong interest in the natural world. Uh, my parents let me roam the you know the forests around our house. I was in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, growing up. Uh, they got me a microscope in the second grade. I was really interested in looking at you know pond water and you know, onion skins, all that sort of stuff, and the little slides that came with it. You know, and my father was really good at indulging my inquisitiveness and sort of my energy around you know that. Um, but everything was kind of went on okay till I hit the fourth grade, and then I had a teacher who really just didn't like me and she didn't like my curiosity and my questions. And she sort of decided she was going to cure me of that by sort of harsh humiliation tactics. And that really shifted my focus and my interest away from science and into sort of um, authority figures and um, abusive power, as I saw it as a kid, and just human behavior overall. And, uh, and I just sort of checked out. I didn't take school seriously really from that point on and nobody seemed to really care, which was, I guess, in some ways good. Uh, when I got to high school, my guidance counselor eventually took me out of college track and um, put me into a PE intensive program with some theater arts classes that she thought would sort of help me manage my irreverence to the education system. And I basically barely got out. I graduated and I had no plan. So I applied to the police academy um, and luckily, in a way, that didn't work out. So I signed up last minute for community college. Um, and I sort of spent the year there. And then I transferred to um, the University of British Columbia, a four-year school, as a major in sociology, just because of my interest in human behavior. Um, I couldn't read and write, write very well, so I almost failed English 200, but I got an A in chemistry for art students. So I switched to science um, after that and um, became a microbiology major. I got into the honors program. Um, and when I was in my senior year, one of my professors kind of saw my potential and he recruited me. He was the Dean of Science and there was a new program in biotech. So he recruited me into that. Um, and my, my husband in graduate school and then his 
postdoc took us to San Diego, and uh, the rest is history. I did science in paradise. Um, so that was great. I bet down there in San Diego. So it sounds like you rediscovered that scientific interest or the biological scientific interest that you have. Oh, absolutely. It just, you know, I was, as uh, soon as I was exposed to uh, microbiology and molecular biology, um, you know, I just, the fascination grew and, um, yeah, and, and into graduate school, just learn everything, you know, just the opportunity to learn constantly at the bench was, was fabulous. Mm-hmm. So what led you working in quality control and into adopting a quality by design approach for assays? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. So in you, when you read my intro, um, my first job in San Diego was actually doing malaria research at a research institute. And um, I didn't really like the job very much. I didn't really like the culture of the lab. I wasn't really very happy there. But at the end of my first year, um, there was a grant um, a grant dried up, basically. It didn't really dry up. What happened was there was a government scandal and they discovered that the monies had been shuttled from our grant to some other part of the government that wasn't supposed to happen and it all blew up. So about eight of us lost our jobs. So it was right at Christmas time, but in January, I got this job at a small cell and gene therapy company right away called Viagene. And I was basically hired to do research, build MLV-based vectors and packaging cell lines, producer cell lines, and do assays for that. And then as the products move from basically research through development, um, they I just sort of followed that. So I went from research into doing assay development for preclinical work and then the preclinical studies. We, you know, I actually ran some of the preclinical studies for the assays we developed. And then same with uh, clinical, we need some clinical assays that were unique. So developed those, started you know, running some of those tests, support process development, same thing. Um, and then eventually in 1995, Chiron bought the company. And at that time, they merged all those functions. So the um, assay development and um, clinical testing and quality control all came under my direction. And so I was promoted to the director of QC. So that um, that basically uh, started that. And then as to how I got into uh, quality by design, um, you know, when I was given this responsibility for QC, I really didn't have a huge background in GMP compliance, and there were a lot of things I didn't know. But I got involved with um, the USP, the US Pharmacopeia, and standards and information chapters in cell and gene therapy and bioassay. So it was through that work that I was introduced to a lot of statisticians from bigger organizations, and they introduced me to the quality by design approach for assays, which was really fabulous. Nice. Thank you for clarifying some of that um, about your first work and how that's transformed. So you've been working on uh, gene therapies for a few decades in various capacities, if you've, as you have mentioned. Um, and through this resurgence over the last several years of gene therapy um, sort of becoming a hot topic once again, how has the focus of your work um, and quality control changed through the years? And, and what kind of challenges do you foresee as the field continues to move forward? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, I was thinking um, as I was talking there about all the different things that I had done as I was mentioning them to you. Um, probably for the first few years when I became, after I became the director of QC, I was really focusing on what was sort of trailblazing for the technology at the time, which was actually residual DNA uh, testing. So it used to be 10 picograms per dose and, you know, we couldn't meet that. So there was a push to get WHO to change it to 10 nanograms to dose and that per dose. And that happened. 
So I worked on that. Um, replication confident retrovirus was huge. And so I spent a lot of time working on that. We published, um, it was, you know, the FDA guidance incorporated our publications. You know, we were really active in that space. And then also at the time, you know, PCR had only really come into, you know, real um being widely used probably in the early 90s. So we were trying to then take it from research into quality. So I would say for like about five years, those were kind of my, that's what I was really focusing on. And then in um, 1999, the Jesse Gelsinger was, you know, was the, um, the young man who died in the clinical trial at Penn. And that just kind of put a big shift. It was, um, that was right at the end of 1999, if I remember correctly. And at the same time, I had um, decided I was going to leave my job and and so uh, go into consulting. So what turned out to be my client base at that time was really um, people who were trying to uh, put quality systems for gene therapy. So you had people from QA from different fields coming and trying to do gene therapy. So I had really was you know quality systems and GXP compliance, and then I was active in the adenovirus reference material working group. So I learned a lot about standards in that process, and then in kind of doing that work, sort of discovered with a statistician that parallelism testing, when you're doing any kind of testing for equivalence of slopes, had been historically done incorrectly. So we published a paper in that, which launched sort of the next few years was a focused in bioassay and statistics training. Um, and that, you know, from a technical side is really but what I've been doing probably for the last 15 years. Um, the other thing though, that I've um, really come to kind of focus on is helping clients take a more holistic approach to identifying critical quality attributes of their products and to kind of see this truly as an organization-wide objective so that you have appropriate funding, that you're clear and you communicate the expectations, all of that. And, um, you know, it's a very long iterative process to figure out what matters for your product, what the critical quality attributes are. So, um, it's really important that people get comfortable with failures and sharing those and having interdisciplinary conversations in order to really facilitate connecting of all the dots. Um, and you'd think that would occur kind of naturally, but it doesn't. Sometimes it it just doesn't happen. So that's, I guess that would be it in a nutshell. As for challenges, um, the ones that come to mind are just the ones that I personally have dealt with that are like paradigm shifts. One would be um, well, so some, some products that I've worked on um, can't be sampled without destroying them. So how do you do quality testing? Um, things like making parallel cultures and randomizing the two to, you know, randomizing the two and then deciding at the end which one's this product and which one's the QC so you don't bias how you handle them. Things like that. These are totally, you know, new paradigm shifts. Um, the other thing is um, developing potency assays or bioassays for products that are going to be manufactured bedside or, you know, close to patients, uh, which have to have rapid turnaround times and also be amenable to those um, kind of facilities. So that's very challenging. Um, and I guess probably the last thing is just unraveling all the immunogenicity issues around gene therapy products. I mean, it's just huge. So I guess those are the challenges I see moving forward. Yeah, a lot of those challenges parallel um, in some of our previous episodes, previous conversations um, in this field, another bioassay expert. So as a consultant for startups and and also established biopharmaceutical companies, what is it like working with clients who are developing these cutting edge you know, therapies and, and processes that I imagine are changing constantly or yeah. um, new things totally? Well, 
I mean, the simplest way to put it, it's never boring. Um, uh, but I guess that it's kind of exhausting in that I'm always on the steep part of the le- learning curve. So whether it's through the innovations in the products themselves or the innovations in the assays, um, there's always just so much going on and new for me to learn and get up to speed on. Um, there's at least one novel QC issue every single client. So I feel like my knowledge base is getting wider and deeper at the same time as I move forward. Um, it's really exciting being energized and um, and educated by the next generation of young scientists and physicians who are you know moving the field forward. Um, and I guess you know I've, I've been thinking it, it sort of forced me to become more comfortable with offering wisdom as opposed to technical expertise. I think when I started out, I really knew the ins and outs of everything, and that's what people hired me for. And now it's sort of like everybody else knows the nuts and bolts, but I can kind of connect all the dots and see the big picture. So. That's that's been great. Yeah, that's an interesting viewpoint. I see some of your uh, sociology background maybe coming in here, um, working with all the people side of science. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's I think. Um, I, to be honest, I think my success as a consultant has almost come more from that than it has come from the technical expertise. I mean, I think they come together, but I, I, I almost feel like the other one's the advantage. Um, and that's only because there's so many left-brained kind of more science folks who, mm-hmm. who tend to maybe um, have higher, you know, uh, intellectual intelligence, maybe less on the emotional. I mean, it's just to, you know, broadly generalize, generalize, I mean, so I'm sure we'll talk a little more about that as we go along. Yeah. So you, you know, you've transitioned, transitioned to this role, uh, maybe bringing, uh, you don't have to be as much on the technical expertise side of things. So are there any particular applications or technologies that you're seeing that really excite you uh, in the field? Yeah, well, I know every time, uh, well, a couple of things, I guess that probably about half of the clients I've had over the last few years are in cancer indications. And, you know, like many of us, uh, we have lost friends or family members to the disease. And so um, I'm always just really excited about seeing anything in the late stage cancer arena. That's always really um, exciting. Um, And then, you know, we've had these recent successes. I wasn't sure, you know, (laughs) At certainly around the time when the Gelsinger death, death occurred, it's like, are we ever really going to see this, you know, field turn into, turn real products out? And uh, it's been really nice to see over the last few years what you have some approved products. So, you know, in the, um, and that there are, you know, genetic diseases that are helping save lives or improve the quality of life of children. And so there's so much, uh, you know, now any other disease, any other genetic disease seems like a real possibility that it will be cured. So I'm kind of hoping that, you know, in my lifetime, I'll see something for sickle cell disease or for hemophilia. And those are two projects, you know, that I've worked on in the past. So I'd like to see that happen. Um, As for the technologies, I mean, as you know, there's just so much happening in the, in the um, regenerative medicine space. I mean, there's just, it's just incredible. Um, What, what I find really encouraging there is there's just some really amazing advocacy that's happening, you know, international advocacy with the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine or the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Um, there's the standards coordinating body. There's just so much happening uh, to really make these products move forward and to really build the public trust in the process by having everyone take such a strong collective ownership for the outcomes of developing these. So that makes me really excited. 
Great. I'm curious that, you know, working with companies of different sizes, do you find that, say, do the startups face the same issues um, on the tech side and maybe on the organizational side as, as established uh, versus established companies or establishing companies? Well, I mean, the thing, I guess, you know, the, if I've learned one thing at all, and it's so obvious, like everything else that's complicated, it takes a village, right? So whether the village is small or large, it definitely takes a village to get everything done. But what does that really mean in practice? Um, it kind of means you have to understand that um, that success is a synergistic outcome, right? So you have to have a bunch of diverse talents and personalities and stakeholders um, to achieve sort of the complementarity necessary to fill all the functions that has that have to be filled in order to efficiently get what needs to get done done. Um, so there are differences between the small companies and the more established larger companies. I would say the small companies have the advantage of everyone knowing each other. And so they actually have to rely on each other more directly because they don't have that many people. So everybody's effort really uh, matters. And they kind of know that everybody sort of realizes that they're critical to what's going on. Um, and there's usually a lot of excitement and energy because, you know, those typically are, you know, entrepreneurial leaders. So there's a lot of, um, you know, hypomanic kind of people there um, getting things going. But I, I, I think usually where I come into the story is usually when they start experience what I'll call growing pains. And that's when data starts, data scrutiny starts to intensify. So we got more people looking at it and FDA submissions and things like that. Um, and they have to start implementing, um, you know, quality systems and that kind of, you know, is a little dull. So you, I sort of sometimes see that egos get bruised and, um, and maybe people get a little bit bored interest fades when the D part of like development starts to, you know, become more important than the R where people really have been focusing. So, um, that would be the small companies. Then with the established companies, of course, they have the advantages of, um, infrastructure experience with success and therefore more resources and, um, and they're kind of more stable in terms of those resources. But what I've seen is that silos tend to emerge when you have a really big company. So you just can't keep everybody connected. Um, and there, there's some, um, I guess you can, as a result of that, you get resistance to innovation. So if one group wants to do something new that the other group doesn't really necessarily want to do, or it's, it impacts them in such a way. Um, and it can be really difficult to get open communication across the, uh, across the silos, um, you know, to make sure that efficiency is really being gained by, you know, knowledge learned in one group is being shared with another group. And that sometimes doesn't happen. I guess at worst that I've seen it is sort of the us versus them attitudes that sort of are at every turn. You find groups against each other. So sort of a scene is a win, you know, zero sum game. Like if you're, if you're something's going well over here, it's somehow not going well for me, um, which doesn't make any sense, but sort of ends up that way. Outcomes are likely positive for all of humanity. Yeah. Well, if you, yeah, if you definitely, if you view it that way. It's interesting thinking about the organizations that science operates in, and, you know, it's the same sort of organizational structure that many sorts of fields work in. And in addition, we've mentioned this before, but in, in addition to your technical consulting, you have recently begun consulting on leadership development and training. So again, the human side of science, can you talk about what led you to really focus and branch out in this area? Um, and how your approach to creating culture of 
quality might lead to more successful outcomes? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And um, yeah, I guess the, the short answer and more general is that sort of my professional passion for achieving quality in cell and gene therapy products, which has sort of been there since I got introduced to the field, um, has really um, began to sort of blend organically, if you will, uh, with my personal interest in psychology and sociology, which I think stemmed from my early childhood experiences. And, um, you know, I guess looking back, I really approached that very scientifically, how I looked at people and I was always trying to figure out the system and how it all worked and who was doing what and why things were happening the way they were. Um, so it, as those sort of did begin to blend organically, I sort of felt compelled to expand the scope of services I felt I could provide to really, you know, improve, like you said, more, have a greater chance of success. So to, um, so I, I adopted sort of a new vision, which um, is taken actually from the Healthy People 2030 government program. And that vision is a society in which all people can achieve their full potential for health and well-being across the lifespan. So that's a very big it is a very big vision and that it gives, you know, so we can think about not only the products we produce for patients, but also the people who are producing them as actual parts of that system too. So um, to get more specific than what the catalysis really was on the professional side is that, you know, I had a lot of experience because of working with many different teams, with many different clients and many types of organizations, as well as auditing a lot of um, contract organizations for clients over time where very quickly I could, I could, you know, the, the organizational culture is revealed. It doesn't take long to sort of figure out what the organizational culture is from an outsider's perspective. And um, sort of, I think a universal, universal truth emerged for me, which is that the capacity of leadership to really care and foster healthy relationships really correlates strongly with an organizational commitment to quality products and outcomes. Um, and for the health and self health, you know, safety and well-being of the employees. So I really just could see that as pr pretty crystal clear. On the personal side, so um, sort of something a bit more negative, um, my kids were in high school um, from like the 2000s, still like they graduated in 2015 and 2017 respectively, but during the time they were in high school, there were seven suicides in six years at their school. Oh man. Um, there was two in one week and the last one occurred on school grounds during the school day and was posted on social media. Oh. And it was not only just a heartbreaking um, experience. I mean, for the community, uh, you know, no, you know, just that it happened all boys. Um, but I was shocked that so many parents really didn't seem, seem to see that the family and school and community culture in our particular school district really exerts a, you know, to put it purely biologically, a powerful selective pressure on these kids, these students. And I mean, they literally killed some obviously. And then for those that succeed, um, there's an associated message that they carry forward in that to um, college and to the workplace about what's important. And so you end up with, so, so my sort of take home and in integrating all this information was that, here we are biologically very wired to, you know, connect and care and cooperate, but sort of part of the American identity and its meritocracy ideals, you know, they amplify these individualistic, um, you know, behaviors and, and status seeking, which manifest in ways that are the opposite of our expressed desires for egalitarian and quality outcomes, right? So it's sort of this, um, 
we're not we're just not paying attention to connecting those dots. Um, and then with my reading in, in psychology and sociology, I read a lot in that space, evolutionary, cultural anthropology. Um, there's a renowned psychologist named John Bowlby who coined the term environment of um, evolutionary adaptation. And he just that's he coined the term to describe the conditions under which our attachment mechanisms, you know, psychological attachment mechanisms. Um, evolved and examines how modern life really undoes that and you know interferes with that. And then coupling that with Peter Corning's work on synergistic selection and how we really do get successful um, as a species, um, I really developed an approach that I, I essentially just talked to leaders um, at every level about the strong selective advantage of behaviors that foster synergistic outcomes, um, drawing parallels between sort of the features of healthy systems of a human body and the healthy systems of a quality organization. And, you know, include things like feedback loops and synchronization and complementarity and diversity, but do it really in scientific terms that I think um, make it much more um, palatable. So we're not talking about how people are failing necessarily. We're talking about the right. science of what needs to go on, right? So we could we can talk about a more third person and less about you know how we feel. We don't have to tell our personal stories. We can just focus on what needs to happen and how what are the barriers and have conversations that are a bit more in the you know as we talk as if it's a scientific problem. So right. I think that sets me apart from from others. And so far, um, you know, one of my biggest clients is a large community um, hospital. And I was working with their executive leadership team and, you know, they're all surgeons and they really, really, you know, it really resonated with them. They could really talk about this. Whereas if you go the more emotional intelligence, you know, HR, touchy feely, emotional stuff, it doesn't really go as far. That's really interesting. Frame it. I mean, it makes sense. Frame things as a scientist would when you're working with people who are scientists. Um, yeah, Fascinating they, connections. Yeah, they tend to engage more in that realm because they can talk about it, like I said, as something external to themselves, whereas a lot of other types of leadership training encourage people to talk a lot about themselves. And that's not always something people are comfortable doing. And it, you know, there's certain, you know, cultural things around that, but the science kind of normalizes or neutralizes all that, in my opinion. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, so it's it's new and you know I'm I, it's something um, you know still mostly I get people coming to me for the technical support but I integrate this to the extent that I can and I have a couple of people who are interested in just that aspect so we'll see what the future brings. Yes, indeed, that's fascinating. Um, quality control in both the science and and the people. Um, that's it. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nancy. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me again. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next episode for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.